Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is November 24th, day after Thanksgiving. And I will just start out by saying I'm fairly proud of myself. I didn't overindulge too much in the food department. I was unable to eat lunch yesterday, and I got a run-in. And then I did definitely splurge at Thanksgiving. But, you know, went to bed not feeling like death. So we'll take it. (laughs) It was a victory. Uh, Anyways, I hope your Thanksgiving was good. Later in the episode, I might do a little rant about turkey trots. I read a good piece in The Atlantic about turkey trots and how they kind of link in well with the excess of American culture and also kind of our puritanism towards a little pain and, you know, no gain without the pain type of stuff. But anyways, I do want to start by giving a shout out. So what was it? Today's Friday. So Wednesday night, I was eating some Mexican food with my aunt and uncle and my dad at um, one of my favorite Mexican places in Reno. And uh, we were sitting in a booth and there was a lady next to us. Anyways, my, my aunt and uncle and I on my dad's side, we always get into pretty good political discussions. So the four of us were eating and had a few margarita, or each had a margarita and we're, you know, into a political conversation. And so at the end of the dinner, um, the waitress comes up and tells me in Spanish, she's like, the gal next to you paid for your dinner. And I'm going, wow, okay, really? All of our dinner? What? Why? And um, so afterwards, uh, we're all getting up to leave and I go over and thank her. And she just explained how she was really happy to have sat there and listened to our entire conversation. And she was just shocked that a family could sit down around the Thanksgiving time and have differing opinions, but also have such a fascinating and fun and long conversation about things ranging from like Israel and Palestine to Trump and Biden's low poll numbers. Like we covered everything in that hour. It was kind of like a roundtable podcast. But anyways, I just, yeah, shout out to her. Uh, It was cool to see uh, someone did something nice like that. And uh, yeah, she was just like, it's cool to see that people can't have those tough conversations because a lot of families can't. So I thought that was kind of a cool holiday experience. So shout out to that gal. Um, But anyways, I want to talk about a lot of things today. But first, just a little update Sam Altman, it's been a crazy week, by the way, at OpenAI, <laughs> and Sam Altman is back. I Let's see, I think it was two nights ago I saw that come up on my phone before I went to bed, and I was like, damn, I, it's been a crazy week. I was not expecting him to be back so soon, but then as I was talking about in the podcast I did on Monday, over like OpenAI has like 800 employees, and what, like 700 of them were talking about leaving, so it could have been a little bit difficult And so he is back, which just blows my mind. But The Economist has a good shorter piece talking about maybe why he was fired in the first place. And it writes, a letter from researchers to the board of OpenAI warning about an artificial, sorry, warning about an artificial general intelligence project, which could pose a threat to humanity, reportedly contributed to its decision to briefly (laughs) sack Sam Altman, the chief executive. The article continues later on. OpenAI was founded as a non-profit research lab aimed at safely developing AGI, which can equal or, or which can equal or surpass humans in all types of thinking. So some people think that maybe there were fears about what Altman and some in the company were wanting to do. Of course, I kind of talked about this already, right? You have a you kind of have an internal battle between commercializing this and seeing how how big it can grow and how effective it can be, and others wanting to rein it in. Again. I think it's good that there are companies like this that are having these internal battles, like rather than having Altman go to Microsoft, where clearly companies like Microsoft would want profit and growth probably to be their main incentive. So anyways, it's interesting. I'll probably do another episode later on once more comes out, but just a little update on that. Now, the main, the first main big thing I want to talk about is Peter Meyer. 
and how it seems like he's gone from a never-Trumper, one of the only 10 people to impeach Trump, by the way, um, to now kind of a J.D. Vance figure, or at least he's positioning himself to be kind of Michigan's J.D. Vance, unfortunately, very unfortunate. And let's remember that he was a freshman senator from Michigan. Obviously, this is a wealthy guy. His dad and grandpa, I think it was his grandpa, started the Meyer grocery chains. They are not in the West Coast, but they're huge in the Midwest. When I was in Illinois, you saw lots of them. And anyways, Peter Meyer comes from a very wealthy family. He runs for Congress in Michigan, wins as kind of a center-right, more libertarian type of Republican. And one of his first things he did is votes to impeach Trump after January 6th, one of 10. Pretty brave. And then obviously he loses in the primaries in 2022 because of that. And also because, as I talked about at the time, the Democrat Party apparatus put money into his opponent, who is a Trumpy MAGA Republican, a radical Republican, and they thought it would be a better calculation for the Democrat to win. So Peter Meyer loses, and now he's been away for a while. And unfortunately, he's seeming to try to rationalize why he would support Trump. And he's also talking about running for Senate. So Less than a year ago, Politico had a piece in an interview with Meyer, and he talked about how he couldn't imagine voting for Trump again. This is that this is maybe during his journey where he was out of politics and just kind of laying low. But since then, things have changed. So Politico gave another interview with Peter Meyer, and this is Adam Wren did the interview, and it's an interesting piece that kind of makes me sad. But Wren writes here in an intervo- in, a, in an interview with Politico magazine. Meyer said he'll now support whoever whoever the 2024 GOP nominee is, amid little doubt it's likely to be Trump. And this article also talks about how, unfortunately, he's doing more than just saying, well, I'll vote for the nominee. We have to remember people like even Larry Hogan and Chris Sununu, whom I would consider never Trumpers, they have said they would vote for the nominee, whoever that is. But Meyer's going further. He's announced that he's going to join a crowded GOP Senate field in Michigan. You have the Democrat uh, retiring, and you have like three Republicans running for that seat. So it's going to be tough. And so he submitted a court filing, also arguing, though, at the same time, that Trump's name should be allowed to appear on Michigan ballots. This is amid that debate over whether he's disqualified or disqualified from presidency because of January 6th. I don't think it's... I don't think it's right to disqualify him on ballots, to be honest. It's just going to divide us more and make more chaos. But it's interesting how he's actually submitting court filings arguing Trump should be on Michigan ballots, and he is running in a crowded Michigan race. Obviously, he's trying to virtue signal to Trump by saying, you should be able to run, sir, and um, I'm running in Michigan, and I'm doing this for you, so hopefully you scratch my back. And I guess this is a bit depressing because we have to remember that he was just one of 10 House Republicans to vote to impeach Trump. And he did this in his freshman time as a congressman. Pretty brave. And I think there's something interesting here before we get into points of the interview and some other analysis about it. I think the political article also kind of notes that his rationalizations about going back for Trump do seem tortured. Like he's not going out there and saying, I love Trump all of a sudden. Trump's great. I've just completely been wrong. It seems like he has this kind of anger towards Democrats and Biden and the left. So it's like his distaste, his distrust, and his almost just hatred almost towards what the left is doing is pushing him towards voting for Trump or supporting Trump. And Politico writes here, Adam Wren writes here in quotes, 
he seems to blame Trump's revival more on Democrats and their cynical calculation than the GOP voters who remain in his thrall. And again, we have to remember that the Democratic Party, the Michigan Democratic Party specifically, helped fundraise and support the Republican that was running against him in the 2022 primary. This guy was radical and easily beat him. And I can't help but wonder if Meyer got more cynical and bitter after this. And maybe he hates Trump. He probably does despise Trump deep down. But maybe he hates the Democrats more at this point and is very angry about what they did to him in 2022. And also, this is a sign to me as well. <laughs> that even critics like Meyer are coming to terms with the fact that he's once again going to be the party's nominee and probably once again the president. And that's also depressing in a lot of ways. But it does seem like he's recognizing, okay, I want to run for Senate. And if I want to run for Senate, guess who I'm going to have to at least be somewhat friends with or at least friendly towards and somewhat supportive of? Donald J. Trump. Now, I should also note that I think some of this coverage of Meyer makes it sound like he's fully gone J.D. Vance. I do think he's on that trajectory as of now, but he's not a big Trump supporter, and I think it's more complicated than that. Matt Lewis, kind of a center-right guy who's now writing for Daily Beast, he talks about how, in quotes here, Meyer lamented that Republicans running for office in the Trump era know they need his endorsement. And then what they end up doing to get that endorsement ends up being disqualifying. And Lewis writes here in quotes, to be clear, Meyer presumably believes that one, Trump was responsible for a riot that sought to stop the peaceful transfer of power, two, that it, that it wouldn't be such a bad thing if he were elected leader of the free world again. And that's the issue here is that he's lamented the people that go out for Trump's endorsement, seem too crazy, and then actually end up disqualifying from it. And then again, he's going down that same road. He seems to be okay with some of that disqualifying behavior. And now his brave vote against Trump after January 6th just seems like a mood point. And I think the irony of this entire shit show, which is what it's probably going to be, is that his change in opinion is A, probably going to ruin his legacy, and B, he's not even probably going to win this. So he's he wants power, obviously. He wants to be back in the mix. And he's probably not even going to win this Senate race. And then also his legacy is going to look worse because he does this brave vote and now has backtracked on it. And so basically, he's going to uh, face a very tough primary. So Debbie uh, Stabenow, Stabenow uh, is, is the senator from Michigan. She's a Democrat. And she is retiring. And so he's going to have to go against Re Representative Mike Rogers, who is kind of the mainstream GOP lane. He's not a radical MAGA guy, more center-right, right-wing, and pretty popular in Michigan. And then he's also going to have to go against a former Detroit police chief named James Craig, who's a Trumpier figure, much more on the right. And so I don't know where Meyer stands in this when you have kind of a mainstream Republican and a MAGA cop running. And then you're also going to have the Democrats. So even if he gets out of this race, it's my theory, too, is just between those three, you have Rogers, Craig and Meyer going against each other. It's probably going to get ugly. And he's probably going to either have to go completely anti-Trump and try to get the moderates or go full MAGA to out-MAGA this police chief, uh, James Craig. And either one, I think, ends up with him looking bad and probably not going any further. And then also at the same point, Politico notes here in quotes, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has already come out against him, saying he can't win. So now their war chest, they're, they're going to go completely after him and make sure he doesn't win, because again, he did vote to impeach Trump in 2021. So I don't know what his lane is here. I really don't. And... 
I, I think he should have just decided not to get involved in politics during the Trump era because I, he just can't really exist in them, right? And the only way to get elected is to kiss Trump's ass, and this irritates moderates that liked his heroics in 2021. So back to the Daily Beast article for a second. Um, Matt Lewis brings up another good point. He writes here in quotes, sacrificing his career to impeach Trump should have been his defining moment. What else do most people even know about him? He's a rich kid from a family that owns a lucrative supermarket chain, check. He is an Iraq war veteran, which is commendable. And he stood up to Trump, back then at least. And the crazy thing is that he knows he may be throwing away his legacy for nothing. Kind of a tragic tale. Another, another one of the Trump era, I guess you could say. And again, getting to J.D. Vance, I just can't help but think of some of the parallels here. I read that entire interview in Politico, which I recommend people check out, and it sounds like he's just going down that road of an intellectual moderate conservative that initially condemns Trump, calls him out, says he's dangerous, but then warms up to him over time. Maybe he meets some MAGA figures, gets in the mix, realizes he likes Trump's support, it helps him politically, and over time he just continues to rationalize Trump, rationalize Trump, rationalize Trump. And he sounds like someone that wants to be a populist in Michigan. He wants to be the J.D. Vance of Michigan. And I've all the things he says in this political, political article, which I'll get to a few of them in a minute, it just seems like he's trying to slowly rationalize a way to allow his, show, his slow shift towards being more supportive of Trump. It's not for politics. It's not for the American people. I think it's more for himself to feel like he can rationalize it. And I want to read a few parts of this because he kind of gives me that Susan Collins-esque vibe. Remember, I think it was after the first impeachment, she said Trump had learned his lesson and that, you know, he will never do this again. That's why she didn't vote to convict him after he was impeached in the House. And, okay, so here's a few parts. Uh, He says here in quotes, my overarching goal is to make Joe Biden a one-term president. I... I think that the economic damage that he has wrought and will continue to bring will have far more wide-reaching negative consequences on the country than a second non-consecutive Trump administration. Later, he also says in quotes, and frankly, if Donald Trump is returned to the Oval Office, there would probably be a few better motivators to rein in executive power. I've been railing against the risks of, of the office of the presidency, which I think is the most dangerous institution in the country today. So this one I love, and it's insane. He's basically saying like, Biden is really dangerous, worse, more dangerous than Trump. But then again, remember, let's remember in 2021, he voted to impeach Donald Trump because of January 6th, because he saw Donald Trump as an existential threat. He was a freshman congressman. It ruined his career in Congress. And he voted because he knew how dangerous Trump was. Interesting, that cognitive dissonance, this disassociation with reality all of a sudden. And also the second thing he says is kind of insane. He's saying maybe it'd be good if Trump came back to the Oval Office because Trump will be so crazy that maybe then we'll have motivations to rein in political power or executive power. Sorry. He's basically saying, let's let the crazy man drive the car. And then maybe once he's driving the car, we can set new driving standards and make sure the roads are safer. Fucking insane, if you ask me. But that's where we're at. It's just these justifications don't even make sense to me. And later on in the article, he again says that, he, he actually thinks a second Joe Biden presidency would be more dangerous than one of Trump. This is a guy, Iraq veteran, quite intelligent. I think he's been pretty supportive of Ukraine. Trump, like most of the world, most of the bad actors in the world, China, Russia, Iran, I'm sure even, they want Trump to be president again because 
He's good at dividing us internally, and he would easily be more sympathetic to Russia's cause in Ukraine. So I just don't understand where Meyer is coming from here. We'll have to keep following it, but the last thing I'll say is that I think Meyer shows what Trump and MAGA NatCon values have kind of done to the country. I, I don't think someone like Meyer or Vance would have had this insane shift if Trump wasn't involved in politics. I think they would have gone down the road of just being moderate, right? And again, Meyer has not, it, Meyer is not J.D. Vance, I will just say. The trajectory seems similar, just in its early stages, right? It seems like maybe Meyer is at the beginning of his shift, a shift to grift, we'll call it. So anyways, it's disappointing. I'm a huge Meyer fan, and I just find it insane that he's completely backtracking on some of this because there was a Great Atlantic article after he voted for impeachment about how he was getting death threats and how he just felt unsafe because a lot of a lot of Michigan MAGA supporters were sending him death threats and he, he just felt like the mob was after him, basically. And so it's insane now that he understands those dynamics and he's going back to him. So anyways, we'll move on. So anyways, guys, I want to talk about a guy, Gert Wilders. Uh, <laughs> how do I even start here? Actually, let's just start with the recent events and then I will get to my thoughts on it, and what could be happening next. So Gert Wilders is potentially going to be the next prime minister of the Netherlands. The Economist writes here in quotes, the Dutch election produced a shock result as the Party for Freedom, the PVV, led by Gert Wilders, a veteran far-right politician, won the most seats in parliament. Mr. Wilders has pledged to halt in quotes a tsunami of asylum and immigration to the Netherlands, but may find it difficult to form a coalition with the mainstream parties. The conservative party of the outgoing prime minister, Mark Root, came third. He is leaving office after 13 years in power. Now, interestingly enough, I think it was, I was driving to work, oh, probably three months ago. I remember listening to a podcast and they were talking about how Mark Root, they, they had another election a couple months ago and his government was going to be forced to make some sort of coalitions with right-wing parties. And a lot of people people were, were worried that the center and the center-left were losing power. And that seemed like a bit of a harbinger for things to come because now Garrett Wilders, his party did insanely well, shockingly well. And now it looks like we could have another far-right person in power in a pretty important country. And last week, obviously, I talked about Javier Millet in, in uh, Argentina and we are seeing this resurgence of far-right candidates do well. And I think it makes sense when you have – it made more sense in Argentina just because the, the center-left and the center-right are so corrupt. People are just like, fuck it. Let's try something new. The Netherlands, I I less understand it, though the, – the, what, I've been there three times? Yeah, yeah, the three times I've been there, it does seem like the country is struggling with immigration. I will say that. You have kind of a homogenous society – and over the last decade or so, there has been just a huge wave of immigration. And I think when you do see crime, whether it's correct to say it's caused by the immigrants or not, you do find a lot of the population is willing to kind of turn towards the people that want to keep the Netherlands the way it was. Again, not saying I agree with that, but that just seems to be the case in some of these countries. But anyways, I've actually been following Garrett Wilders for <laughs> quite some time. Back in 2017, I wrote my undergraduate senior thesis, whatever you want to call it, on the paradox of populism. That's what it was called, the paradox of populism. And even back then, 
I would say he was probably one of the key figures and parties that I talked about in this case study I did, looking at the links between foreign direct investment FDI that was out that would cause outward migration. Um, also looking at populism, immigration, capitalism, nationalism, all that. If you want to ever read it, let me know. I can send it to you. But anyways, he was one of the main figures in it, um, the, the Dutch and Wilders himself. And I wrote at the time that Wilders, Wilders sorry, was a pretty prominent figure that was on the rise. I'm just going to read um, a few little segments from that paper. I wrote, The Netherlands saw the growth and at this time second place finish of the Party for Freedom. This party is led by Gert Velders, a controversial populist politician who is known for his outspoken condemnation of Islam, including xenophobic policies and cases of blatant racism. He was actually barred from entering the United Kingdom in 2009 for said eruptions of racism. Though controversial, Wilders has the charismatic demeanor of a true populist, fostering anti-establishment views. His party gained force following the changing tide in European politics, along with the growth of radical Islamic attacks in European cities and the decline of middle-class jobs to a mix of globalization, wage declines, and technology. The PBV may not have won the election, but they received the second most number of votes at 21, or sorry, seats at 21, which was behind only the People's Party at over 30 seats. A loss meant that Velder could not become prime minister, yet his party is gaining significant traction in Dutch affairs. So again, I wrote that in 2017. Here we are now, and he might be the next prime minister. Now, let's get into a little bit more of the details here. Wilders has been called the Dutch Donald Trump. If you guys know me, that is not a good thing. <laughs> and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I believe it was 2009, he was barred from entering the United Kingdom because they were worried that if he entered the United Kingdom, it would cause chaos and it would get in the way of cultural homogeny or societal homogeny, one of the two. But basically, they thought that if he came to the United Kingdom, he could cause up a whole chaotic shitstorm, and they didn't want to deal with it. So he is quite a character. And a buddy of mine said this. <laughs> I think it's pretty damn true. He said he looks like a mixture of Boris Johnson and Joaquin Phoenix. And once you see that, there's no way to unsee it. But anyways, he has been... He's actually received a lot of death threats from extremists as well. So he's been able to kind of milk that going to court, you know, looking like the victim. So that's been very helpful. He's um, been convicted actually of insulting Moroccans and also um, threatening Muslim groups. Not, not a great guy. And now after this victory, he needs to form a coalition. And the interesting thing here though, is that in the past, he's talked about de-Islamization of the Netherlands, which could be could be very extreme and could really get quite against human rights, I guess I would say. But anyways, um, the AP writes in quotes here, in this election, to court mainstream voters this time around, Valders toned down the anti-Islam rhetoric and sought to focus less on what he calls the de-Islamization of the Netherlands and more on tackling hot-button issues such as housing shortages, a cost-of-living crisis, and access to good health care. I forget who I was telling this, but I feel like some of these like far-right populist types, if they could just shut up and like not believe like half of the stuff, the other half, you're like, okay, yeah, globalization has hurt blue-collar workers. Technologies change things. Access to good health care. 
the cost of living is going up, housing shortages, fuel prices. Like these things are always fine, but then it's like, well, but then this guy also, he's not really a fan of other races, <laughs> death threats towards them, big Trump guy. Like, unfortunately, they always come with baggage. And in this case, he did. But of course, Europe, like the United States, is seeing high costs of living, fuel prices skyrocketing, a lot of worries about security following what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Ukraine. And so his message kind of appealed to people. And this isn't as much part of his platforms over the years or his rhetoric, but he also is what I would call a Eurosceptic, like he is not a fan of the European Union and how it's handled a myriad of issues. He's been a little bit less talkative about the Putin stuff, but he is very, very pro-Israel, which would surprise none of us considering he's very anti-Islam. And one has to think that he probably would, would be fine with a lot of what the American right says, which is they would be fine with turning Gaza into a parking lot. He's more of an outlier, too, in a lot of Western Europe. I think in Western Europe, you see a lot more sympathy for Palestine and even Hamas. I've seen it in Spain. And so he is more of an outlier and being such a hardliner in support of Israel. And I, I do think it's crazy, though, how some people, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he would agree with them, believe that you just have to take out all of Palestine to get rid of Hamas. That just seems to me like a humanitarian nightmare, a massive loss of life and just completely illegal. But anyways, we're not talking about that today as much, but there... The Guardian seems to think that it might actually be difficult for Wilders to form a coalition government and actually become prime minister. This is, to me, almost looking similar to what we saw happen in Spain, where the far right and the right win the majority, like like Pepe, the Partido Popular, gets first place but is not able to form a coalition government. And then chaos ensues, right? And in this case, the Guardian writes... The party of the Netherlands' outgoing prime minister, Mark Root, has ruled out forming a government with the anti-Islam populist, Gert Walders, as coalition talks began following this week's shock general election result. Later in the article, it says, Their decision removes the first building block of a potential partnership for government with Walders' Freedom Party, which caused a political earthquake. And the only thing, though, that does worry me is, then, is going back to the AP article, Apparently, because Root's party, as I recall, is kind of a center-right, centrist party, but there are conservatives inside of it, obviously. And the AP talks about how the conservatives inside of Root's People's Party for Freedom and Democracy have indicated that they might support Valders on some votes in parliament. So it's like, it doesn't sound like they would form a coalition, but he could get voting support on certain issues. And so now we just have to see who else he can get. Now, the interesting thing is that the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy that I just mentioned, there is a member of it, Dilan Yezegos uh, Zegarias. Sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. She would, she is one of the ones that has talked about uh, potentially voting alongside Valders' party on certain parliamentary votes. And I think she also has aspirations to be prime minister. She's no centrist either, especially on immigration. She's a former refugee but now a huge advocate of cracking down on, on immigration, which is kind of interesting to me. And she's 46, and her and Root, a former you know, leader of the party, they have had a lot of rifts on a myriad of issues, including immigration and asylum seeking. And she's Turkish. Her father was an activist. 
And some think she could either be a problem for Valders or potentially an ally. Except he doesn't exactly like migrants and refugees, so hmm, who knows. Um, there's also the new social contract party, which is center-right. There's a guy, Peter Omnijikt, and I probably pronounced that incorrectly as well. These names are not exactly difficult, I mean, ex exactly easy to say. But he's another one who has established this new center-right social contract party, and opinion polls, people like it because they're kind of crusading for whistleblowers and victims of government scandals. They kind of have a drain-the-swamp type of idea. This guy is a former member of the center-right Christian Democrats. Um, he thinks that government needs to be held accountable, so he also sounds like probably a sen sensible ally for Valders. But then interestingly, you also have like the Labor Party, which green left, which is obviously a left European Union, more centric party, right? Center left alliance type of thing. So you have a lot of different interests here, for example, that could make things complicated. But right now, I, I, I guess I wonder if Valders continues to try to moderate or at least cover up his message. Kind of like Giorgia Meloni in Italy, who went from kind of being a fan of Mussolini and basically part of that post-fascist Mussolini party to now kind of not even mentioning that. I wonder if that's the case of what happens going forward. Who knows? But what <laughs> what will be insane is if we have Javier Millet, Argentina's new leader, sitting next to Gert Wilders, the new leader of the Netherlands, because they look like quite a crew. Then if we get Donald Trump back in there, God help us all. So we'll have to keep following this, but I, I've always been interested in Dutch politics, just a history of imperialism, colonialism. I would argue kind of modern capitalism is from the Netherlands. The, the, the Netherlands exported that to a lot of the, a lot of the new world at, at a time before you know, the United States took off, still struggles with a lot of immigration and asylum seekers from the old Dutch territories. A lot of interesting populist dynamics coming out of there as a backlash, I think, to a lot of Dutch influence throughout history. So anyways, we will move on once again. One side note, I was doing my, my long Northwest Reno run today. I was, it's probably why this podcast is coming out later than I was hoping, but I was planning on going on a, you know, five mile run and ended up doing a 14 or so. So anyways, fun times. But when I was on the run, I noticed, I feel like after Thanksgiving, people are friendlier. Like, like always that day after a holiday or on the day of a holiday, people make a little bit more of an effort to say hello. Like last year when I was still in Chicago, I was walking out at the lakefront on the lake, lake view, like lakefront trail, whatever it's called. And, um, it was on Thanksgiving and usually in Chicago, I didn't get a lot of people saying hello. I'm kind of the person that's always saying hi to people and you don't always get that same reaction in response, but on, on Thanksgiving, I was surprised how many people were like, happy Thanksgiving. How are you? And I don't know. I, I just think like maybe we should have a national holiday for living that's like every day so that people are just kind of like incentivized to be nicer all the time. Because I, I do find that unfortunately, and, and maybe fortunately, holidays do kind of push people to be a little bit nicer. So maybe we just need a year long holiday. But then people say, well, Alex, if it's year long, it's not really a holiday. So anyways, just my my ranting thoughts. I want to move on and talk about something that you're probably going to be like, Alex, why the hell are you covering this on a political podcast? But it's a cruise ship story that I think actually perfectly sums up why people have no trust in anything anymore and why people are irritated with companies scamming them and why we probably do need more oversight and regulation on some of these giants. 
So basically the background here is that a shit ton of people signed up for the inaugural voyage of the Life at Sea Cruises three-year voyage. Now, before we get into the specifics, if, if, if you guys don't know me, you might not be aware of this, but if you do know me, you know my thoughts on cruises. I've traveled a lot. I find cruises to be antithetical to travel. And what I mean is that you're on a cruise. You don't get off the cruise for a lot of the time. You only eat on the cruise during the, the nice meal, which is dinner. So say you go to the French Riviera or you, or you stop in the Amalfi Coast, stop in Naples, I guess would be more accurate. You stop in Istanbul. They'll drop you there in the morning. You can go explore the city right when all the crowds are there. You get stuck in lines. Yeah, you can have lunch, but then you have to get back on the boat for dinner time, which is usually like one of the best times to try out amazing meals in some of the coolest places in the world. So you're missing out on the nightlife. You're missing out on the quiet parts of the time when everyone leaves. I'll never forget when I was in Venice. It's a different town at night than it is during the day. And what I mean is that cruise ships come in by the fuck tons, excuse my language, and during the day, the population of the city like triples. But then after like 5 or 6 p.m., it's a ghost town. The streets are quiet. The restaurants are booming with locals. That's when you want to be traveling. So that's my first thing about cruises. Also, it's just like, what do you do on them? You just work out, drink, eat, go to watch a movie, eat, uh, go in the pool, eat. It's just like they're all the things you could do back in the United States, but you're just on a floating toilet. And so anyways... Long story short, I, I, I think my personal hell would be on a would be to get stuck on a three year voyage. <laughs> oh God! Now, okay, some of those Viking cruises they do up in like the fjords and in Alaska. I think you could sell me on a week long one of those. But yeah, cruises are one of my personal hells. I think they're for people that maybe it's too late in life to travel more intensely, or people that kind of want to travel without actually traveling. Yes, I said it. Fight me. I will die on that hill. I think cruises are overrated. You will not find me on one anytime soon. So all of that aside, basically a bunch of people, according to CNN, signed up for, in quotes, the experience of a lifetime. Three years traveling around the world from the comfort of a cruise ship at prices that rivaled regular living expenses. They haven't actually provided the prices, but what's happened is that after weeks of silence, the company has acknowledged that it has no ship. And I should note that it's not like this is a year out and it can warn the people, hey, I know you guys wanted to do this, but we actually don't have a ship, so here's your money back. No, the people are actually stuck in Istanbul, where I guess the cruise starts. And <laughs> they've some of them have sold all their belongings. Some of them have sold their houses or are leasing their houses, renting out, I guess, their houses. They have made, they've sold their businesses or made huge life decisions. And they're all sitting in Istanbul and find out that the cruise isn't happening. CNN writes here in quotes, Some of the passengers who booked the 111 cabins sold are still in Istanbul, having made their way there ahead of the original departure date. And now from my understanding, it was originally going to be in November. Then actually, no, I have it here. So the cruise was set to depart on November 1st, but then they postponed it to November 11th and then to November 30th. And <laughs> apparently they never had a boat, which is 
I don't even know what to say about that. Uh, I, I really don't know what to say about that. Like, they, they just didn't have a boat. And I guess, well, actually, here, so, so CNN then says, some say they have nowhere to return to, having sold or rented out their homes in anticipation of the round-the-world voyage, as well as jetsoning their possessions. They also lamented the loss of community that had been built up in the run-up to the cruise. One person said, I was looking forward to building friendships. That's what made it different from a regular cruise. We were all of the same mindset and all started with the same thing in mind. And I guess a lot, I guess a lot of people have been interviewed in frustration, but they want to get their refund, so they're staying anonymous. But what's going to happen basically is the company is going to start making repayments in monthly installments starting in December and ending in late February. And... Apparently, one passenger who is remaining anonymous because they want to get the refund said here in quotes, there's a whole lot of people right now with nowhere to go, and some need their refund to even plan a place to go. It's not good right now. So I laugh at this. And I mean, of course, maybe these people should have done a little bit more research. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them were at least financially well off enough to be able to make a decision like this. But at the end of the day, I can understand why the people are furious Sounds like this company has went through some management changes. I was I was digging deeper into this and apparently so Life at Sea Cruises was going to buy a ship that was retired by Ada Cruises, which I've never heard of cuz as you guys know I don't like cruises, but it was a German subsidiary of Carnival. <laughs> I I do know Carnival and Basically, they were going to buy this ship and then renovate it before using it as the three-year ship, which was going to start in Istanbul. And apparently, life at sea had a lot of uncertainty and a lot of chaos. Apparently, the sale was taking longer. And on November 16th, another company, Celestial Cruises, said that it bought the Aid Aura, <laughs> which... Again, the the ship was supposed to set sail on November 1st, and on November 16th, they say this. But anyways, then there's Life at Sea's former CEO. (laughs) Notice the word former. She resigned days earlier and is not speaking on behalf of the company. But apparently she said they were going to try to get a new boat, and she admitted that the cruise would not be going ahead. I guess the main reason, which is not particularly surprising, is that they couldn't afford the ship. And they were then presenting the project to other investors. (laughs) Then they also talked about how the unrest in the Middle East following what happened in Gaza and Israel was making things worse. Lots of fun here. But then also this Holmes gal, she also mentioned that they were going to, that if the passengers then moved over to a different company, they were going to try to get that setting a sale. At the same time, no pun intended, a lot of employees from uh, Life's at Sea were jumping ship to other companies. To me, it sounded like a complete shit show that no one was talking about until the actual people that paid to get on the boat showed up in Istanbul and were wondering why the boat wasn't actually happening. And look, I mean, I, I personally do a lot of research on travel companies. If I use them or places I'm going, I read reviews. The thing here is obviously this was the inaugural voyage, right? The maiden voyage. I don't like to be on those either, to be completely honest. The Titanic taught me not to be on maiden voyages. But that being said, I mean, this company, I think, should be held quite accountable for this because it is kind of a big deal. Like, think about it. You're paying to go 
on a three-year cruise that you are told is going to happen. And so, yeah, you probably need to sell some things to make that work. You need to change your life completely. So it's not lost on me that this did fuck up a lot of people's lives and this company should be held accountable for it or these other companies because it looks like they keep switching hands and moving. And I don't know. It's weird. But again, you couldn't pay me enough to do a three-year cruise. But there are people that like cruises. I also would probably admit that a three-year cruise would be different than just a typical cruise. So We'll go with that. But hey, maybe Ted Cruz can get on. He does like Cancun. He does like his name is Cruz. So maybe he can get on board um, with this and get them back. Or maybe the U.S. can investigate this led by Cancun Cruz himself. But but all jokes aside, I mean, I think this does how a lot of sorry, that got that got a little uh, weird there for a second. Um, It does show how a lot of companies are not held to a high enough standard and there's not enough scrutiny and you know, the the consumer ends up getting hurt. So this is happening. Fascinating story to me. Figured I'd lighten it up a little bit. Anyways, the final thing I want to talk about real quick is that yesterday was Thanksgiving. Had a good time with the fam, as usual. And this is weird because I've criticized Chicago a lot on this podcast. I like Illinois, loved Wisconsin, was not a specific fan of Chicago itself. But it's weird. I was reminiscing a little bit yesterday on Chicago and did miss it a little bit. Did miss it a little bit. I was talking with another buddy from my grad school days, and he was feeling the same way. Uh, And I don't know. It's funny when you leave a place how differently things are. But there's a reason I'm bringing up Chicago. So I was there for several Thanksgivings, and a couple of them I was kind of on my own. One of them, a good friend, shout out to them brought me out because their family lived near me in Lakeview. So we had a nice Thanksgiving all together. Uh, The next year, my mom came out to see me. So I was always doing stuff for Thanksgiving, but always in the morning, they had a turkey trot. It was, you know, at 7 or 8 a.m., cold, right on the lakeshore, brutal, 5K. And, And the funny thing is, I would watch the people do it. It's always the same type of vibe at any turkey trot. And then I would sleep in get up at like 10 or 11 and go do a 10k or a 15k and I don't know I I just always was I like to run a lot and I just never found it necessary to get up at the crack of dot on a day off to go do a race dressed in you know uniforms and outfits and costumes and so the Atlantic (laughs) had a good piece that I think talks about turkey trots in a pretty good way and Basically, the article kind of gets into, I think, something that's pretty common in American workout culture, which is like you work out to count your calories so that you can eat or overindulge later. And the article just kind of looks into how excess in America is also at times made up for by this idea of pursuit for pain to enjoy more pleasure. And the article writes here in quotes, Turkey trots around the country are still sometimes touted as ways to, in quotes, earn your Thanksgiving dinner, burn some pre-feast calories, or feel guilt melt away. These messages imply that at least some people are motivated to run on Thanksgiving because of, of a pernicious myth that eating is shameful rather than sustaining, and we must run to basically melt away your calories. And the article, anyways, in The Atlantic gets into, like, Lulu Hunt Peters, the author of a 1918 book called Diet and Health with the Key to Calories. 
this is one of the first books that kind of looks at calories as a way to kind of monitor things, blah, blah, blah. Like you run two miles, you burn 200 calories. Therefore you're afforded 200 calories. And I, I guess why I bring this up quickly is because I think all of us are guilty of thinking, Oh, I ran and burned a lot or I lifted and burned and now I can eat more or now I can indulge more. I don't think that's crazy at all. But there is this kind of idea of I think a lot of people use exercise as a means to an end or as kind of a way to just make up for excess in other parts of their lives. And I just don't particularly think that's really the right way to go about things. And I think that's also why you see a lot of people get on fad diets and intensive exercise routines. And then at the end of the day, they just kind of go, fuck it, I'm going to stop because you're just not doing it for the right reasons in a lot of ways. And so I, yeah, I, I think if you're only working out just to cancel out other parts of your life, then it's probably not correct. And of course, like all of us are guilty of this in a sense as well. But like the reason why I got really into running and stuff is because it was more of just a way to calm my mind and create a healthy routine to get out and stay active. It was less about just, Oh, I burned X amount of calories so I can eat Y amount of calories. It's like, you're going to eat what you're going to eat and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. I mean, (laughs) maybe you should, but I don't know. I, I just read this article and it got me kind of thinking about those memes you always see where someone's like, I hope I don't marry into the family that does 5Ks in the mornings of holidays. And hey, whatever floats your boat, because I, I usually do end up still running on a holiday, but I don't feel the need to do it as some sort of communal exercise to basically like pre-purge what you're going to do later. <laughs> so anyways, this has been quite a roller coaster of topics today. Um, I don't know, just felt like switching it up a little bit. So anyways, let me know if you have any plans to go on a three-year cruise. Sounds like hell to me, but of course there's a market for that stuff. So hey, maybe um, I would I would not go on the maiden voyage. Still hasn't happened yet. Who knows? But anyways, hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Hope your Friday was good. Hope Black Friday went well for you. I avoid the markets like the plague during these. By the way, tomorrow we will probably talk about a fascinating BBC article I was reading about, well, not even fascinating, a ridiculous BBC article I was reading about how the Black Plague was probably racist, mainly targeting certain communities, even though it happened in, what, 1300 or 1400. Anyways, yes, have a great night. I'll be back. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Adios.